Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Citizen diplomacy is an idea developed during the Cold War. The idea is that regular people can help build bridges to peace when governments involved have limited contacts. Let's hear from two citizen diplomats just back from Iran. Sean Reynolds is a hospital secretary. Sarah Ball is a psychiatric nurse. Both are members of the peace organization Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and they went to Iran with the peace organization Code Pink. Nice to meet you, Sean and Sarah. Hello. Thank you very much. I wanted to, uh, if we could start in around uh, gift giving and hospitality were very important. I wanted to uh, It is everywhere in the world except the United States, it seems. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, I wanted to present this gift to you picked up on a sort of a road stop on the way between Kam and Isfahan in a tray outside a toy store. It might be a joke gift. It's uh, Never Give Up by Donald Trump in Persian. Wow, so they've got the works of Donald Trump just right and, out there. And it says it's an international bestseller right And here. Tony Robbins. One of the copies uh, I've got, I think, of, of uh, uh, The Art of the – it wasn't The Art of the Deal – has um, Amer- Animal Farm international bestseller. And I don't know why in the little band on, on the front. Well, there you go. Donald Trump right there uh, <laughs> with Persian letters and everything. That's Looking cool. Looking very stern there. Um, you know, that kind of uh, – brings to um, thought about an idea about freedom of expression in Iran and, mm-hmm. and what it's like. I think some, some people might think, well, it's kind of a limited amount of freedom ex- of expression. What was your experience with this, Sarah? I found that, um, especially during the latter part of the trip when we were in Isfahan, when we didn't have people, you know, our guides watching over us the entire time, we did a lot of walking around in the city and in the bazaar, and I found that walking around myself as an obvious American, I found lots of people coming up to me and wanting to talk and wanting to tell me about Iran. And one of the people I ran into was a 19-year-old young man who immediately invited me out for coffee and cake and took me to a very modern-looking cafe and sat me down, all these people were around, and proceeded to tell me all of his political opinions, many that I had not heard thus far on the trip, about Iran. And he held nothing back. And I was even nervous for him at the beginning. I thought, can you say these things in a cafe with who knows who listening in? Um, He told me about the corruption in Iran and um, how he would love to go to America. But nevertheless, he was very, very proud of his country, as all Iranians we met were, I found. But he said every single thing on his mind in a crowded cafe in one of the largest cities in uh, in Iran, and I found that was uh, that that was common on the trip. Now you had a conversation I know with students at uh, Tehran University that sounded pretty freewheeling. It sounded like um, they, everybody was saying whatever they wanted. Um, well, we, we we don't know what they wanted, but we had it was it was a lively debate. People were. Um, people in person are incredibly hospitable and polite, and then anonymously, people can 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 despise the hell out of you. The the phrase we had a discussion about the the phrase 
uh, death to America, which gets in the press here. It's idiomatic. It means down with America. Like if I said to hell with you, I don't mean that literally. Um, and they were saying, well, we're going to – we stand up for we get to say that because we we don't trust you. We say what you did to our democracy in 53. You backed Saddam against us in the 80s. Um, and uh, and so we reject we reject the whole package. Um, these were uh, young professors and students in the American Studies Department. Um, uh, uh, the young women were wearing a lot of them were wearing the chador. Um, the headscarf is obligatory, except in in in, in there are some towns where people are, the, are, are in the chador. Um, in government buildings, the offices, you 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 want to wear one too. If I I, I don't need to wear one to get in. Um, 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 they were they were we had uh, it was a, a the U.S. born Iranian journalist recently arrested and released. Uh, uh, Marzia Hashemi was one of the panelists, um, and then our Anne Wright and uh, and Medea Benjamin were the others. And um, Anne Wright is uh, with Veterans for Peace and was uh, was a veteran who was against the Iraq War. Correct. And just to chime in about the Tehran discussion, one of the one of the women stood up and said that death to America for her was something that she had chanted in a protest uh, on the previous week. And for her, it didn't wasn't so much about death to America. It was about, as she said, encouraging the others around her and trying to promote a different worldview. That is a worldview in which America is not the power that's enforcing its own hegemony all over the world. So it's to disrupt the, the current power. We went to Iran because America is overall a worse human rights abuser, um, not against its own people as, as much as the Iranian government is against its people. Um, but we brought chaos to, to Iraq. We brought chaos to Libya. We're bringing chaos to Syria, to Yemen, where maybe 14 million people will, will die this year from famine. We're, we're assisting. Uh, there's a, there's a, a fight in the, in the Senate right now to lodge a sort of senatorial protest against our, the weapons we're sending for that war. And, uh, um, and in Iran, people see that the U.S. as a worse enemy. They, a lot of people would like to live here. It's a, it's a great place to live. Um, they see the U.S. as a worse enemy to Iran even than its own government, which is why they seem to flee into the arms of their own hardliners uh, whenever we elect hardliners. Uh, under, under Bush, they elected Ahmadinejad. Under Trump, Lurt knows what they're going to do in the, in the, in the coming and in next year's elections. You know, I want to pick up on uh, something you were saying, Sarah, about um, basically the, the independent thinking of, of the people at, at Tehran University. It's something you, you had a chance to meet with Javad Zarif, the foreign minister of Iran, sat down and spent uh, 90 minutes with you, incredibly. Uh, why, he seems to underline independence. I mean, he kind of walked through a scenario where uh, he, he said, well, what, what is the, the problem that the U.S. has with us? It's, it's our independence, he thinks. So uh, uh, can you flesh out what would happen there? One of the things he focused on a lot was about how you can't have peace in your own country at the expense of every other country because you're promoting chaos everywhere else. And you can't have an island, you know, a strong island in the midst of, you know, just a, 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 just a craziness everywhere else. So he said that if you want to have peace in your own country, you have to do that diplomatically and recognize the independent existence of other countries, whatever that might mean. And that was something, in his opinion, that the U.S. was definitely not doing at all. And that was something that he was promoting for Iran in the Middle East, that um, Iran, a country of its size and its population, should have a certain amount of say in the Middle East. And currently, it has none. 
um, under the policies of uh, U.S., Saudi Arabia, and Israel. He argued persuasively that the Saudi Arabia is far, far better fits the caricature of uh, Iranian um, uh, regional destabilization and oppression of women, specifically. Um, and it's a more dictatorial country than Iran. Um, so why is it our close ally that uh, 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 Jared Kushner is talking about sending nuclear technology and Trump is the uh, – sorry, and, and, and Iran is the, is, the, is, is the great threat? It's a rational country. Even if it got some of the weapons we have, it's not going to use them because that would be suicide. And there, there's uh, – only, only the worst bigots in America think that, that, that members of any one religion are, are irrational or suicidal. That's, that's, that's an, an, an incredible irrational, suicidal irrationality in its own right. And I'd, and I'd just like to say that Zarif himself spent many, many years in the United States. He studied in I, I University of Denver. University of Denver, and he spent six years in San Francisco, he said. And I found that that was very common on our trip. So many people from all different classes and levels of life had spent an extensive amount of time in other countries. I, I met a man in, 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 in the main square in Isfahan uh, where he had been interview, interviewed in 2009 by The Daily Show. They came <laughs> to interview people in Iran, and uh, he'd worked for an American company. He knew all about us because when you're a weak country, you have to know what the strong country is doing. It's a survival uh, issue. So he was listing off all the U.S. presidents and the system of government, and then they would cut to Times Square asking Americans about Iran. <laughs> and they're saying, wait, that, is that in Egypt? <laughs> I'm talking with Sean Reynolds and Sarah Ball. They're both members of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and we're talking about their trip to Iran with the organization Code Pink, and they took a tour with them. Um, I wanted to ask some about um, sanctions and how the sanctions that the U.S. has reimposed on Iran are are hurting. Uh, do you end up talking to people who are affected by the sanctions in Iran? Do you see that? Um, it, it's a proud country, and people didn't want to complain about weakness. Um, uh, we draw people, had to draw people out about the economy, which is partially suffering from a lot of corruption from the clerical oligarchy there um, and suffering from the sanctions. Right now they have uh, record flooding in Iran. Um, I think it's 62 dead, and uh, they're suffering from a lack of relief, of relief choppers um, because those are some of the prohibited, prohibited devices. Uh, prohibited technology. Um, um, we were largely concerned. We, we we heard stories about people who couldn't send getaway for cancer treatment. We met for one one uh, Iranian kickboxer who is dying for a particular match with uh, someone from the U.S. But I think it's the travel restrictions blocking her there. <laughs> um, we. Uh, the, the 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 insult in the sanctions. I mean, the sanctions are are taking lives because they're 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 increasing poverty and 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 uh, and in in a lot of little ways. Um, but the sanctions are also risking uh, 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 getting us back into a path towards war. So that re walking out of the Iran nuclear deal, uh, reneging on our promises as Trump has done. Um, is setting Iran up to say, okay, we're going to start spinning the centrifuges again. It's a non-nuclear program. It's nuclear, it's nuclear power. Um, we're going to start spinning the centrifuges again, and then we can, Trump can start up the drumbeat towards war, Trump and John Bolton. And that seems to be their focus on an, uh, an apocalyptic war that would make the Iraq war look trite. And one of the things that I heard about the sanctions many times over is that we've had sanctions for 40 years, that is, uh, after the 1979 Islamic Revolution. And I agree with Sean. It, you, you can't expect the Iranian people to say, oh, we're just – we're feeling it so bad. We're hurting so much. Just take these awful you know, sanctions off of us so we can express ourselves again. Their point is that they are a strong, proud country that has a, a – you know, a, 
a lot to say for it. And yes, they. I heard many, many stories, and I think we all did, about how, you know, people couldn't. You know, I, I heard one story about how a woman, a woman's cousin, couldn't. Didn't there wasn't the equipment for a blood transfusion in time, so he died, even though there was a donor with his rare blood type right there waiting to go. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of such stories, but they've been in, uh, saying. We've been under sanctions for 40 years. We know what it's like. We're still doing what we do. Uh, You also had some interesting experiences um, at this uh, nuclear facility you were mentioning there. Uh, They they wanted to take you to a nuclear facility. How much of the tour did you feel like uh, this is what they want us to do or see or something? We had three places we needed to go. We needed to go uh, appropriately to the uh, large – what's the name of this? I've got it in my notes – the large – a large cemetery outside of Tehran, which is also houses uh, some of the million war dead from the 1980s, the Iran-Iraq War, when Saddam Hussein, with U.S. backing, invaded uh, Iran, uh, sensing weakness after the 1979 revolution. Um, and we wound up arming both sides. It was part of the Iran-Contra deal, but we definitely sided with Iraq and wound up shooting down accidentally. It's quite possible it was accidental, shooting down an Iranian passenger jet. Um, we certainly maintained it was, but in, in deference to world sentiment, we have to um, – a lot of people don't believe that. Um, and that was 290 people who died in that crash. Um, now, we the, ended the, up, so the whole Iran-Iraq war is something that I think most people don't, you know, have a hard time grasping the significance of in the Iranian mindset. You know, but well, I imagine when you're there and you're seeing people – I bet you saw a bunch of people who were veterans of the Iraq war – and you get you get gain a deeper appreciation of their, uh, you know, what they want, how it fixes in with uh, their their strategy and the, their ideas about uh, missiles and their ideas about defense and yeah. uh, they it's a it's a very deep thing. There, there a lot of people died. One of the neo hawk the neocon uh, hawk arguments here is that they're building missiles with a very very low payload. Um, so with conventional explosives, that'll take down one building maximum in a war. Sorry, take down one building max. It's they're very they're very weak missiles. So mustn't you be building this in order to to deliver a nuclear payload? And they're saying no. We no one will sell us arms. We had no missiles. Saddam rained down missiles on our city. So the public wants missiles. Um, it's not a democracy in Iran, but it's a, they have very consequential elections. It matters if the hardliners or the reformers are in. Um, and they have to listen to the public, and the public wants to have whatever the United States says they can't have, which is I, uh, a level of involvement and national pride I think might further democratize this country if we invested a bit more in it. Um, and they want, they, want, they want missiles, and so they're building missiles. I, 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 there's no proof of a nuclear option. They had – Saddam used uh, uh, chemical weapons, um, and uh, we helped – supply the precursors of the weapons and we helped the target uh, – the Defense Intelligence Agency was targeting Iranian troops for uh, for chemical weapons attacks, mustard gas, stuff that had rarely if ever been seen since World War I. And, um, and we met uh, a gentleman, uh, a war veteran staffed the Tehran Peace Museum um, and uh, a metal gentleman who will be coughing uh, uh, um, in spasmodic racking coughs every every few minutes for the rest of his life, and a gentleman who has to constantly irrigate his eyes because of damage to his face. He can't. He told us he can't get eye drops uh, because of the sanctions. He uses an onion to make himself cry. And, um, and these guys are veterans who were employed at the Peace Museum. In, um, in I, 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 uh, it's, it's. Uh, they were uh, eloquent testimony to 
the need to resolve these conflicts. Yes, and there were veterans that I think one of them was the director of, of the Peace Museum. He was in a wheelchair. And right after the Peace Museum, we went to the, the cemetery, um, which Sean was talking about earlier. And the thing that struck me was that there were pictures of over every single grave of all of the war dead, many of them children, because so many children died um, in trench-style warfare, hearkening back to World War One in the 80 to 88 Iran-Iraq war. And I think it's another indication of how uh, Javad Zarif, the foreign minister, said that Iranians are historical. Um, going back to the martyrdom of the Imam Hossein in uh, the seventh century, like that's an important that's important for them. Uh, the poetry of the past hundreds of years are important for them. The Iran-Iraq War is important, and all of these things form uh, the Iranian consciousness because Iran is a great country with thousands of years of history. We stopped by a museum. There was a uh, it's 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 yes, seven thousand years and it's twenty twenty five hundred years of monarchy, continuous monarchy up until 1979. We stopped by a museum. They had a Zoroastrian uh, bas bas-relief on the wall, a picture of Ahura Mazda, who our tour guide described us described as a, a king of exceptional piety. He's, he was the actual, he's an actual Zoroastrian deity, but one of our tour guides felt he had to, mus, to Islamicize him and to, they, 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 they seize on their history, on poets singing about wine, yeah. and and have to and try to integrate that as well into into their Islamic faith. Uh, would you recommend a trip to Iran for anybody else who of, wanted to go? Of course, was it's, it, it? It was fun too. Every it was fun. Everybody thought that we we had we we were constantly being we were political, so we were constantly being being watched by very very friendly guides. Uh, a, a tour guide set up like, okay, we'll let them in, but you have to spy on them. Okay, we'll do it, and. Uh, and uh, it was it's 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 one of the safest countries in the world for for for, for Americans to visit. It's like British Britain or Canada. Um, the uh, uh, U.S. allies are, are are responsible for some of the most feared violence. When we went to the cemetery, we had to go to the Haftatir um, mausoleum, uh, 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 victims of an MEK bombing. Uh, a lot of if you hear um, our senators and especially on, not John just Bolton. on the Republicans. Um, they uh, uh, praising the new future government of Iran, the MEK, uh, a sort of Marxist, no longer so Marxist, Islamist sort of cult yeah. that has uh, uh, killed a, a number of, of, of prime ministers and presidents um, and fought on the side of Saddam during the Iraq war and has carried out assassinations for Israel more recently and are the most hated people you could possibly hope to put in a new democratic government. <laughs> They're the most hated people in that country. And yet we, we say that we're going to bring democracy by installing them as the new leaders. No, and, that's and, not a goal. And John Bolton and, uh, and, and uh, Rudy Giuliani speak to their organization We've all the time. We've been campaigning Nancy Pelosi to, to back off. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a, you had a fascinating time. Uh, Sean Reynolds and Sarah Ball are both members of the peace organization Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Their trip to Iran was uh, with the peace organization Code Pink. Thanks a lot for joining us, talking about your trip. You've put some stuff up on online on it, on the, on the Voices website. And yes. um, people can read a transcript of your interview or your conversation with Javad Zarif, the foreign minister. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, we're going to find out about the golden age of Islamic science. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're going to find out a few things now about the golden age of Islamic science. With us is Ahmed Sadri, professor of sociology at Lake Forest College. His latest book is an illustrated adaptation of the Persian classic Shahnameh the Epic of the Persian Kings. And it's good to see you again, Ahmed, who we talk with regularly. Good to see you. Pleasure to be here. And also with us is Aaron Freeman, a longtime friend of WBEZ, an artist in residence of the Chicago Council for Science and Technology. And he and Professor Sandri chat regularly on Aaron's YouTube channel, Sciency Optimist, and have been talking about the golden age of Islamic science. Aaron, what got you interested in the golden age of Islamic science? Well, you know, because Ahmad knows about it. <laughs> and you're a curious guy. I'm a curious, I'm a sciencey optimist. But no, Ahmad and I regularly talk about uh, various things sociological on uh, Sciencey Optimist YouTube channel. And uh, I, you know, we were just chatting always every week, as you know. Well, what's the topic? What's going to be the topic? And we were, he was just telling me a little about the, the history. I, well, I knew a little about that Islam was own science, as a matter of fact, uh, for example, that most of the stars that have names have Islamic names, and I have heard of algebra <laughs> and uh, algorithms, and I understand that those are Islamic words and the name for Islamic people. Cool. And um, when was the age of Islamic science, Ahmed? Well, it pretty much coincided with the European uh, Dark Ages. So usually when uh, Western uh, historians of science or uh, experts on, you know, West Asian literature think of Iran in that time, sometimes uh, they uh, tend to generalize, thinking that since there was Dark Ages <laughs> or Late Antiquity, in Europe, the same applied to Iran. For instance, there has been this speculation that the Shahnameh, the Epic of the Persian Kings, that was finished 1,009 years ago, uh, come March 8th, uh, they assume that this was written down as the fer uh, author, Ferdowsi, the poet, went to oral recitations. As assumption is that it, these things were not written, and right. this poet was some kind of a Homer writing down from oral uh, productions. Indeed, this wasn't true. Ferdowsi worked from a written archetype, and it's because that was a literate society, society full of people who were perfectly capable of reading and, and, and really good critics of poetry. And so we know this because at the end of the book, Ferdowsi, who is a very, very proud uh, poet, uh, he confesses that this uh, 60,000 couplet lines that he has written, the longest uh, poem ever written by a single human being in the history of mankind, uh, there are 500 so-so lines in it. <laughs> and people have speculated, why would he say something like that? And the best answer I have heard is that he knew that there are people who can read this and criticize them, yep. and he was kind of covering himself. And so this is a literate society. He's working out of an uh, archetype, and, and science was one of the things that was in the air. 
Well, can I say, I mean, how literate were they? <laughs> well, first of all, I want to say that in due, in due respect to our Persian brothers and sisters, the center of science uh, in the Islamic world in the 8th to 12th centuries was Baghdad. That was everybody who was anybody, of Christians, Jews, they wanted everybody there. But they were so good that at a time they were, that the, the Muslims were translating the, the Greeks, in the Greek, Greek philosophy, Greek mathematics, into Arabic at a time when Charlemagne, the king of the Holy Roman Empire, was just starting to learn to write his own name. <laughs> These guys were amazing. Tell us about the House of Wisdom. Ah. What, is that, what is that about? So... Uh, during the Abbasid uh, period, the second Islamic dynasty that took over about a century after the dawn of Islam, uh, there was a great interest in translating Greek uh, literature and science, astronomy, into uh, Arabic. Also, they uh, ended up translating a lot of Indian uh, science and mathematics. And part of this a renaissance that occurred in Central Asia and Iran uh, and, the Ira- and the Islamic world, including Baghdad, is a result of this confluence of ideas. Muslims took the idea of zero from, uh, from Indian um, uh, mathematicians, and this gave rise to algebra. Uh, Greeks were great in geometry, not so good in math because of the, their system of notation. So this kind of positional notation, zero that, uh, and decimal system that uh, uh, Iranians and Muslims took from India and Greek astronomy and Greek medicine, all of this kind of work together in the Abbasid period, the period of translation, the period of combining these ideas very creatively, the period that uh, the previous systems in the region, the caste systems have been knocked down by the Islamic invasion. And uh, uh, in this new era, new ideas really created this uh, critical mass uh, that led to this scientific uh, discoveries in astronomy, in medicine, in philosophy, in literature. And one of the things that's really useful to note is that uh, Baghdad was a very open community. Like, they welcomed scholars. All they cared about was your scholarship. Your religion, where you came from, was irrelevant. They wanted to learn and learn, and they wanted to get all, they wanted to translate everybody's scientific work, everybody's literature, everybody's mathematics, from whatever language they were, into Arabic. This seems to be a um, a, a something that uh, all great learning societies do. You poach the other guy's science. You've got to do it. I mean, the United States. I mean, we've done it a lot. Indeed. Indeed. Civilizations are great in plagiarizing, plagiarizing <laughs> each other. So and they, the great civilizations you, you, do plagiarize. You, you bring it on and make yeah. your right. own thing. Yeah. So yeah. You know, they are not really good at recognizing the sources, yeah. but they <laughs> plagiarize all, every, every uh, great civilization has been in the business of plagiarizing their neighboring civilizations. And it is in those areas that we really find exciting new leaps, exciting new ideas that emerge. And the Islamic civilization... Uh, and the Iranian civilization uh, was no exception. They, they took from Chinese, they took from Indians, they took from Babylon, ancient Babylonians and the Greeks. And in the middle, in, the, in, in, in this ferment, in this great culture, new ideas were born. 
Um, tell us about the the man who's credited with inventing algebra and and algorithm and all the rest. So, algorithm uh, was created. Uh, invented by this man, man named Al-Kharazmi, whose name is corrupted in algorithm. And uh, from very early translations, uh, Latin um, translations, we know that they had great respect for algorithm, uh, for, 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 for Al-Kharazmi. And whenever they referred to him, they basically would say, thus spoke Al-Kharazmi. <laughs> they were really, really impressed by algorithm, and, and, and for good reason. You know, yeah. this is what our computers are based on. So uh, uh, this great uh, development of, if enlightenment is anything, is recognizing the power of human reason. Yeah. The power of human reason that sometimes works against revelation, sometimes works in tandem with revelation, sometimes cl- uh, claims that revelation is reasonable. There was great creative contacts with revelation. Uh, a great uh, uh, mathematician of this era, Al-Biruni, had a wonderful conversation in four letters um, uh, with another great uh, physician and mathematician and astronomer, uh, Avicina. And the basic debate was whether we should accept Aristotelian view of the universe or whether we should go with our observations. Al-Biruni was saying our observations is that these heavenly bodies are moving in ellipses, not in circles. And Aristotelian, Avicina was saying, no, circle, according to the great teacher, Aristotle is the best, uh, most beautiful, most perfect shape, and they must go according to these circular uh, uh, systems. So Al-Biruni says, I don't care what Aristotle said. I, I will go with my observations. And by the way, based on these observations, they very accurately calculated the circumference of the earth. And one of the uh, students of Al-Biruni, uh, Al-Forghani, wrote a book very accurately uh, ca- calculating the circumference of the earth. And this, this is the book that Christoph Klump worked from, and the only problem that existed was he miscalculated because he didn't convert Arabic miles into European miles, and that is why he thought he had arrived in India when he had arrived in America. (laughs) So, and actually, Al-Biruni, not only he calculated the circumference of the globe, he also speculated that there should be a mass of land on the other side because it would make no sense that all the mass of earth would be on one side and the other side being empty. So even speculated about the existence of the landmass of America. Totally fascinating. Now, I want to ask about how the age of Islamic uh, science came to an end. <laughs> what happened? That, why, why, well, did, why did this ever stop? Can I say one thing about that? Because that my, my, I love Neil deGrasse Tyson. I adore Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he's a great man, a great scientist. But he said something that I repeated for years, which wasn't right, which was that uh, uh, al-Ghazali, one of the imams of, uh, of Baghdad, had banned mathematics as a tool of the devil. Which and I have repeated this story many times, and it's not true. So <laughs> even if it's Neil deGrasse Tyson, well, I'm glad you've you gotta, been able to write the ship. Here. Yeah, well, I'm just saying it is. It is true. 
But they, uh, what was your question? <laughs> uh, why, why did it come to an oh, end? Why did the age well. of science come to Because this guy said, uh, yeah. said this fake thing? Or, uh, no, 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 no. Well, well I mean, you will tell us about what so happened. I think, <laughs> first of all, we should say they had a great run. Yes. Right? Then nothing uh, lasts forever. The and they the had 12th. a really yeah. great run yeah. for, for uh, 300 years. And that we still benefit from now. And Algorithms are why a lot of people will be hearing the show. Indeed. And so uh, the idea is that, yes, it ended, and my speculation is that they had a counter-enlightenment, very much like the European counter-enlightenment. Remember that what, from the European counter-enlightenment, we had uh, communism, ultimately, as one of these progenies, and, and fascism. And we really had to fight very hard, and we are still fighting against those extremist views about how the society should be run, how liberal democracy is not really right, and we should go to one extreme or the other extreme. This counter-enlightenment had proponents, and Al-Ghazali was one of them. And enlightenment doesn't end because of one person. But Al-Ghazali's views, he was a very clever philosopher. He was a great scientist, but his ideas tended towards mysticism at the expense of independent reason. But also, Al-Ghazali wasn't uh, an ignorant anti-scientist. He was a very smart, I mean, he read Plato, and he read uh, the, the, the people he opposed to. And as a matter of fact, uh, he wrote, a, he wrote a, an analysis of Plato that right. was taught in European school, a, 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 a um, a contradiction, a challenge, a critique of Plato that for many years later the Europeans used. You can't understand Plato unless you read Al-Ghazali's criticism of Plato. Right. So the idea is that he wanted to, to reject Plato. Right. He didn't like Plato, but he said first you know who Plato is. And he right. wrote the definitive book that for a long time people mistook for the work of Plato <laughs> because he didn't want to attack a, a straw man. He, de- he developed pla- Platonic uh, philosophy perfectly so well that it became the classic uh, textbook on Plato, and he goes on to reject it in another book. (laughs) So this is not really an ignoramus that says, uh, you know, mathematics is a work of devil. Aaron? Oh, I was going to say that, so my takeaway from all this is that, one, uh, scientific progress is not inevitable because, again, while the Muslims were having their great scientific revolution, the Europeans were in the Dark Ages trying to figure out how to write their names, and also that scientific advances are not necessarily permanent. The Muslims had theirs, and then it went away, and it's useful to note that. Protect your age of enlightenment. Protect your age of enlightenment. Jealously. Jealously, absolutely. Ahmed Sandri is professor of sociology at Lake Forest College. His latest book is an illustrated adaptation of the Persian classic Shahnameh, the Epic of the Persian Kings. Aaron Freeman's a longtime friend of WBEZ. He is artist in residence of the Chicago Council for Science and Technology. He and uh, Ahmed Sadri uh, chat regularly on Aaron's YouTube channel, Sciency Optimist. Check it out. Uh, good to see you guys. Thank you, dear brother. Pleasure. We love Mike Gilmore. <laughs> Coming up after the break, we'll have global notes, a look at international music, and we'll get into some SEMA funk. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music with Catalina Maria Johnson, the host and producer of Beat Latino on Vocalo. Great to see you, Catalina. Hey, Jerome. Great to see you again. So you brought a friend this time. (laughs) Well, this is uh, an amazing artist who I caught just a couple weeks ago at South by Twice. You told us about him here on Worldview. (laughs) I told you about him. And... uh, Eric Iglesias Rodriguez, a.k.a. Sima Funk. And then I went last night to Martyrs to see him. And I might go again tonight to Old Town. I mean, uh, he's an amazing, amazing artist. And uh, it's a pleasure to have him here. Hi, Eric Sima Funk. How Hola. are you doing? ¿Qué tal? Hola. Uh, thanks so much for, for being here with us. And um, it's a treat to have seen you several times and to have one more mm-hmm. chance. Tell us a little bit. Let's start by the name, Sima Funk. I think that's very important for people to yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. The name is because the name is uh, Sima came from Sima Ron. Sima Ron were the, the slave in Cuba who escaped um, in many places, the African slave that escaped from the house of the master and start to live in, in the middle of the forest, you know, like hiding and stuff. They build communities there. So they was calling Cimarrones. So Cimarron come from that and because they have a lot of influence in the Afro-Cuban culture, Afro-Cuban music and visuality. And the funk, well, it's the funk. <laughs> so I mix that because I'm a big fan of funk music and the Afro-Cuban music. So I try to put me a name. I put myself a name. Uh, consequence with that. You know, I was looking at some of the material on you, and it was saying that you were influenced by a cassette of Lionel Richie. Um, what? <laughs> where were you getting your music uh, when you were in Cuba? When you were growing up, what was influencing you? Yeah, yeah, well, was that was part of that. That's something that I that I remember uh, a couple of months ago because I was with all the interviews and stuff that people asked me, and and it's good because. I remember more at that time. But yeah, I get the uh, some line of Richie, get Michael Jackson also, Invisible, that is my favorite album. Again, Madonna uh, was my uncle who who brought all this music to the house. But yeah, many, many influences. Foncarelic uh, also, Edward uh, on Fire, Ohio Players. Wow. All the good stuff. I've also heard that... I've also heard that you chose... The, these musics and funk and reggae in particular because of their history, you know, because of their history with African descendants. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, is that uh, what, I, I live in Cuba. i born in Cuba, so it's like a, you have the influence of Africa like 100% in every square. And and when you make like music, danceable music, that I love danceable music and I, I do a lot of danceable music, uh, you have to sing in Africa because they bring they bring us the the groove. They bring us the the drum to to Cuba. Uh, we're talking like influence. We're talking with Sima Funkies at the Old Town School of Folk Music tonight for the um, for the price of whatever you want to give. It's it's a free it's a free maybe ten dollar thing Donation, right yeah. there at the Old Town School of Folk Music. I want I want to play a cut. Um, mm. We're going to hear um, what's what's your big single here. Me My boy. big single. <laughs> Me boy? Yeah. No, she knows, she knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. that one, it's that one. Let's hear it. Oh, yeah.
me voy para la tuya. Si tú quieres, yo me voy contigo. Ama, si tú quieres, yo voy para la tuya. Dile. Ya se acabó la fiesta. En la calle no hay nada. Pero tú estás pa' cosa. Y yo no estoy pa' drama. Vamos a ponernos de acuerdo. Los dos queremos lo mismo. Yo puedo seguir pa' mi casa. O puedo coger el ritmo. Dime que tú quieras ser pa' yo sabes que voy a hacer pa' bla, bla, bla. No tengo tiempo. Ya me está cayendo la impaciencia. No te asombre si te suelto el coro del momento. Me voy. That's Sima Funk. He's an Afro-Cuban musician, and this is off his debut album, Terapia, and he's embarking on his first tour of the U.S. and playing at the Old Town School of Folk Music tonight. Um, it, tell me something about uh, a Cuban, Ameri- Cuban touring America. It's got to be, is it, is it easy to get a visa? You've got a big tour planned. You're hauling a lot of people around with this band. Uh, wh- what's it like? Yeah, no, the visa, the visa is, is you have to ask from the embassy. You don't have the embassy, so we travel to to other place to to ask for the visa. But it was it was it wasn't a difficult a difficult tramit. We get it easy, and and now here is like uh, for many places, a lot of people supporting, a lot of people uh, communicating with us. Like uh, great, great, great. They are super glad that we arrived to US and we make it too. With this kind of music, they have this. Uh, it's, it's a great time. We're having the great, greatest days. Tell me about your band. Uh, you, they're they're pretty large. Yeah, we have we have ten people in the band, and we will we will increase now. In a couple months. Yeah, we are we are friends. Most that all. We, we live together. We we pass all this together, and they have a beautiful energy. Were you thinking about leaving a few of them home? It seems like I couldn't. I do this with five, isn't there? No, 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 no. No, we need everybody, man. It's a tribe. It's you got a, a lot of sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we need that. We need that. We need that. We need that. Yeah, it's a big sound. Uh, and so, uh, Eric, as a singer and composer and producer, I was also, uh, and this album is called Terapia, which is therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I read yeah. that two things. One is you, you studied medical school very briefly, so your family has a number of, like, a surgeon and a therapist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you yeah. also were in the church choir, and certainly your music is a healing experience. So did you bring uh, medical school and, uh, and and the church, going to church in into your music as a yeah of course definitely definitely if you when you hear the the, the album therapy it's about that it's about heal it's about medicine happiness all mixed with sexuality also with the with the pretty and and awesome uh, 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 grateful to, to be here to, to have time in, in life so it's about that it's about take the time for, for, for and live live your life enjoy it Give thanks for being here. Well, thanks and praise. And I was, I'd love to play Alabao, which is, ah, in yeah. fact, right? It, it, I mean, it's often the title of church songs because it's Alabao, which means uh-huh. praise or praise, praise the Lord, yeah. right? Yeah, so, but, 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 uh, yeah? but we, we, we say that in, in Pinaderio, my hometown, when you say something, when you see something like a, like a no normal thing. You say alabao, like, oh, my God. Oh, okay. Well, this is praise and oh, my God. And Pinar del Rio's special twist on that word. Al final siempre te enreda y se calienta, se calienta. Alabao, otra vez nos fuimos. Un movimiento bien lento. Sacude cadera, chula, pelea con esto. Alabao, otra vez nos fuimos. Un movimiento bien lento. 
bruta, antipática, molesta y astuta. Quiero terminar lastimado, uh, que me deje fatigado. Y estoy para contarle a tu mamá, para que ella vea que yo no soy el malo, nada. Para que se entere tu papá, hay que la niña no es tan buena que la niña en la candela la va. Hey, Seema Funk, and he's yeah, performing bro. tonight at the Old Town School of Folk Music. That's a terrific song. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I'm excited for it right there. So, uh, Jerome mentioned your, lar- your large band, which is amazing, so textured. And you have a, the one woman is both a trombonist, which is a, you know, hefty instrument, and a vocalist. Tell us a little bit about your band members. Are they from Havana, from Pinar del Rio? Well, yeah, they, yeah they only, they're only from Pinar del Rio, it's me. <laughs> the, the guitar is from Matanza. I have normally I have two girls in the in the trombone, but I have one of there, Diana, Dianilla. Uh, she is in uh, in Germany right now because she has another compromise before be with me, so she's finished that. She's finishing that for a ride to the U.S. Do you think um, you're in? Do you think you're the first band in the world that has used backup singers as trombone players? <laughs> I don't know. I That's that, pretty awesome. That's a good know, idea. <laughs> and it's a yeah, difficult it's, instrument. Yeah, it's really difficult. But they, she had the sound like really serious sound. This girl is have the potent sound. Uh, I love that. I like, just was trying to 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 see what kind of in, uh, horn instrument I could put, but uh, I I didn't know. I don't know about music. So they appear. They say me, oh, why do you not put this? I say, I say, okay, let's put two trombones, and it's, it sounds like a super strong. It sounds super strong. And you're very, very, very tight. I mean, how long have you been playing together with these eight to ten? We have been playing together maybe for well, with with the trombones. Is is the band have been playing together for one year, but not wow. not all of us. Not all of us. Uh, the trombone came like in that five months ago, and a couple of musicians came three months ago. We passed like a lot of time showing the musicians, and, and but finally we have the the musicians that we need. Now we will put two more. Put to more musician. I, I I don't find them yet, but I will put, I increase the the number of the band. So I have to ask about your dance moves. You've been compared to James Brown and Fela Kuti, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and there's a little Michael Jackson. But you're amazing. Uh, and yeah. so the, is the dance as well as the music kind of self-taught. Kind of what? Self-taught, like you know, you taught yourself. I mean, how did you pick up? The moves are amazing. Oh, do. I don't, I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. That for that for real, I started one day. Normally, I didn't know that I could like move in the stage or some stuff like that. But at one moment, I say, okay, maybe I can move in the stage. So I tell you the reference that I have. I, I'm a big fan of, of James, of course, and Fela, Groove, and, and Prince also, like amazing dancer. That so makes I, sense. Yeah. And the Cuban dancer also, Benny More, was a great dancer. And so I, I, I move, I move. I don't know how. But I do. <laughs> I enjoy now, it. it sounds like people in the audience end up moving too. You saw it twice at yeah. South by Southwest, Catalina. What happens in the audience? I mean, they, yeah, those are was, hardcore music people. I mean, <clears throat> was amazing. Was amazing. <laughs> it's irresistible. I mean, you just can't. Mm. Um, mm. For one, the lyrics are smart, so if you know Spanish, you're kind of like processing that the lyrics are very, you know, sometimes yeah. even like humorous. And yeah, and yeah. yeah, I have to like, you know, reflect as always on life in Cuba. But at the same time, there's this, I mean, it's, you just start moving. I just can't stop. And it's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely irresistible. No, oh. thank you. That's great. 
Um, but speaking of like Lionel Richie and and uh, so there's also a couple of like kind of ballads in in the album, um, just sort of very smooth, right? Yeah, yeah. kind of like and and I have read that you also picked up a lot and that has to do with the words with Trova with like the troubadour the kind of singer songwriter yeah, movement and definitely. that was the way you started yeah definitely definitely I made Trova in Pinado Rio and was there uh, that there was when, when I when I learned to to write because they write like a lot of complicated words in many sense and it's like a crazy movement of, of words so I I try to do also uh, I don't I don't believe that I'm so good writing like the trova movement but well i bring to the to the danceable music and, and it's amazing the combination because always i'm i'm trying always that the people can understand the message well sima funk sima funk it's been great to have you and congratulations Thanks. on Thank your you. career the the new album is terapia and you can see sima funk tonight at the old town school of folk music it is a free offering and a great opportunity yeah. to see sima funk uh, live and in person and get a little dancing done on a wednesday night and even kind of, <laughs> and even kind of some slow dancing. I, I chose a, a a little bit of a ballad, um, yeah. so that we could. Um, uh, oh, so we're gonna go back to me, me voy. Oh, uh, <laughs> me voy. Entonces, so the dancing, the serious dancing. Um, yeah. So get ready. Get your dancing shoes on. Although you took your shoes off last night. <laughs> So, you know, uh, get your dancing uh, shoes on and, and be ready to take them off in the middle. That's right. That's the only scene that we need. <laughs> Seema Funk, thanks a lot for joining us. And culture writer, us. culture writer Catalina Maria Johnson, the host of Beat Latino, uh, heard on Vocalo at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us for another edition of Global Notes. Thanks to you. Thanks to you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about a peace summit that's happening this weekend. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Char Dastin, Jenny Friedland, and Ashish Valentine for production assistance, and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.